There was a moment early in my relationship with my wife, Paula, before we got married, uh, that nearly ended my relationship with my wife, Paula, before we got married. <laughs> um, we were playing the board game Risk uh, together with her family. Now, I, I don't know if you ever played that, but the tagline of this game is the game of strategic conquest and global domination. Now, here's how it works. Every player gets some of these tokens, and the tokens with different colors represent different levels of armies that you can have. There are 42 geographical ent entities throughout the world. You draw cards to, to have placement there. You place your armies, and then you roll the dice to attack or to react to an attack of uh, the armies. And you continue so only one player is left. It's the global dominator at that point. Now, after three hours or so, this is a very long game, uh, the board is full of pieces and cards, and what happens across the course of that time is that it reveals clearly the personalities of those playing the game. Uh, and what I discovered was that my, my sweet wife-to-be and her siblings were intensely, ruthlessly competitive. <laughs> Me? <laughs> Not so much. So uh, when I hit a point when my armies had been wiped out for the ninth turn in a row, I decided there was more than one way to rule the world. So I reached over, grabbed the board, closed it, and turned upside down. <laughs> yeah, the competitive people are going, you did what? <laughs> it was a little passive aggressive, I will confess. <laughs> but uh, it worked in that moment. I was, I was kind of the king of the world in that moment. It was an effective strategy. You and I live in a pretty competitive world, don't we? In a world where people jockey for dominion and control in all sorts of arenas. We're in the middle of uh, NCAA March Madness. At the end of that, there'll be one team left as champion. Go Cats! All right, and so in the middle of that, uh, we've got that, and then, then we've got cooking competitions, Top Chef, Chop, those kind of things. The people of Finland, though, have taken us to a whole other level. They have a wife-carrying competition. These are men carrying their wives through an obstacle course. It's a whole deal for them. Oh, there's more. There's more. There, there's an extreme ironing competition. People iron stuff in weird places. <laughs> there's a competition for this. Who knew? As you look at that, begin to see. We have this desire to dominate and master others. It shows up in all kinds of ways. Academics, business, those kind of things. People like to rule. We want to be in charge. But here's the thing. Uh, who you and I install as ruler or king of our life will determine how we view the world and, and how we define our life. It's all wrapped into our worldview, that lens through which we look at everything and by which we define everything. And we've been saying there are four key questions to our worldview. Uh, who are we? Where do we come from? What's gone wrong with the world? Who or what can fix it? And is there any hope? Now, and most people in the world may, may not give a lot of thought to the first one or just assume we just kind of showed up or think it's evolution. We always kind of emerged along the way. You really kind of get into it with this segment, what's gone wrong with the world? Somebody would say, well, it's the education system. It's economic or ethnic inequity. It's, it's some kind of government program that's not working or it's global warming in some way. If that's what's wrong, well, then who or what can think that somebody that knows something about education or economic or ethnic equity or, or some kind of government program or how to fix global warming. And so we got that, and that's where the hope comes from as well. And you all drive it to what we can see. Well, a biblical Christian worldview is, is very different in its approach. What we've been calling a divine perspective has a very different idea. When we ask that first question there that says, who are we, where we come from, what we're going to say is that we came from, our life is sourced in God. 
And so Psalm 24 says this, The Lord owns the earth, and all it contains, the world and all who live in it. For he laid its foundation and established it. Who is this majestic king, the Lord who is strong and mighty? He is the Lord Almighty. And what you have there is a kind of a summation of the way the Old Testament tends to talk about God. Talk about God as master or, or king or ruler who holds authority and dominion over all people, all circumstances, and all of history. Now, when God's Son comes to earth, he is identified immediately as Jesus. And the word literally means Jehovah saves. But Jesus was the one that said, oh, that's Mary's son. Oh, he's the carpenter. Oh, he's the rabbi. But then a little later, he came to be known as they said he was the Christ. He was the Messiah, the anointed one of God. And they called him Lord. They called him Master. So you have, Lord, heal my servant. Oh, Lord, have mercy on me. Master, save us from the waves that's going to crush us. Master, we've worked all night, but at your word, we will let down the nets. It's the same idea of authority and dominion to him as Lord and Master. Uh, Jesus' half-brother Jude put it all together. He said this, our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you see that in what you find in the Scriptures. There's no sense of a mixtape Jesus. There's no sense of, oh, we got all these equivalent voices, and he's just one of them. There's also no provision for an a la carte Jesus. Oh, I'll take the forgiveness and the mercy of Jesus as Savior, but the, that authority and dominion of Jesus Lord, yeah, not so much. We're not given that option. It's all one. So Corinthians says you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Master. So if we assign and define Jesus as the, the singular, ultimate master and king over us, that reality begins to shape our perspective and how we live our lives. We want to see this morning how it shapes it in a, in a practical way of how we go about establishing the priorities of the way we do life together. We're continuing our journey through Colossians. So if you have your copy of God's Word, would you turn to Colossians chapter 1? Colossians 1. Now, when Paul writes to the Colossian believers, he's reminding them that in spite of some claims to the contrary by false teachers, Jesus is a supreme and preeminent as Lord and Master over all things. And you may remember, we've been walking through these last few weeks, that he quotes a hymn that they would have sung, this beautiful hymn to Jesus, and they would have known all the words, and he raises their vision high. And he reminds them that Jesus is going to come and reconcile all things to himself. In the last week, we saw, oh, not only that, he's going to reconcile you and me. Our hostility turned into, into a relationship with him. And now he's driving down even further, gets down to street level of what his experience in this moment is of living under Christ as his master. So if you stand in honor of the reading of God's Word, Meyer's going to come and he's going to read for us today. We're in Colossians chapter 1, and we're going to begin reading in verse 24 through verse 26. Let's hear the Lord's Word. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. That is the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, 
but now revealed to his saints. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. So in this, Paul says, I have a master and a Lord, his authority and dominion, and he has a life he means us to live. Now, to follow his argument, we're going to kind of work backwards a little bit, so kind of hang with me here. First thing I want you to notice is this. The King Jesus reveals the secret of God's purpose. He reveals the secret of God's purpose. See, God has a, a plan, a purpose for all of life on, on planet Earth. He reaches back into eternity past. It's covered every single moment of all of human history. It's active right now at this moment and will stretch into eternity future. And God's purpose, his heart is, is uh, to, to work things that are they're not, they're not random. Everything's intentional. And it's all, even the hard things, the things we don't understand, it all somehow fits together for human flourishing. Ultimately, it's for our good. It's, it brings God pleasure, brings him glory. And so God's plan that he's been working can be summed up in the words that he used when he first finished creation. And he stepped back and looked at it. And he said, oh, it's very good. It's good. Now, hold on to that. Let's remember that word in that way. So God's purpose is wrapped up in his word. Verse 25 says it's the word of God. But then immediately in verse 26, he says the mystery hidden for ages and generations. Now the word here for mystery is not in the sense of something spooky or bad or criminal. It is, it is, it is the fact of, that means something that's, that's hidden or unknown or outside of our knowledge or our experience. And so for generations and millennia, people had not known what God was up to in the world. They might have known about God, but they didn't know what God was doing. There was no big picture. There was no God Google they could dial up and get an answer. There was no Siri they could ask. What's the deal? What's God doing? They had hints and pieces, like pieces of a jigsaw puzzle that were there, but nobody had the puzzle box top where you can see the whole picture you're supposed to be doing, nobody had the edge pieces to put all of those things together. Nobody could see the whole. It's a mystery. He says, but now it's been revealed to his saints. Saints, not holy people with halos, but everyday ordinary people that had come into a relationship with God through his son Jesus. Oh, people like you, people like me. So I've made it known. How did he do that? Hebrews 1 tells us. Long ago, many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, Jesus, the word of God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We, we beheld him and we heard what God was saying. He made it known to us. Late afternoon, Resurrection Day, Jesus started walking with some disciples and these disciples were so distraught that Jesus was dead that they didn't even recognize that Jesus was actually alive and walking right next to them. And they're telling Jesus about how confused they were, about how disturbed they were, about, because they thought Jesus was the puzzle box top. 
that was going to show them everything God had been doing for all of these years. They thought he was the one, but now it seemed that he was gone, and Jesus finally can't take it anymore. And he says to them, he says, Oh, foolish ones, and so of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. He says, here's what I want you to know. All of that you've been looking for, it's all been talking about me. Now, here's what we got. The Word of God, the mystery hidden for generations, is in fact all summed up in Jesus Christ and his gospel. It's all summed up in Christ. So if I look back and say, okay, well, okay then how was that hidden? Through all this, I look back at the Old Testament and see where it is. And everything that we know about God, we go back and look and see what it is. So from, from even before time, it says he had things in mind. And at the instant of Adam and Eve's rebellion, the God of the angels set in motion a rescue mission of love and mercy for people who had rebelled against him, people like, like you and me. And it's tucked into every single thing that we know of the Old Testament of what God has been doing. It's in the people of God, in the family of Abraham that became the nation of Israel. It's in the moments and the markers that we know so well. It's in the, it's in the crossing of the Red Sea. It's in the giving of the Ten Commandments. It's in when the walls of Jericho came tumbling down. It's in the stopping of the lion's mouth with Daniel in the lion's den. It's in the fire falling on the mountain with Elijah. It's, in, it's with Jonah. It's with all the heroes and all the villains and all the prophets and the priests and the kings and all the things they did and didn't do in the Scripture. So it's in Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and Joshua and Gideon and Samson and Deborah and Ruth and, and, and King Saul and King David and Solomon and Isaiah and Daniel and his friends and Jeremiah and Ahaz and Jezebel and Elijah. It's in all of those. It's in the worship practices of Israel. It's in so much of the Old Testament that talks about, about the, the sacrifices they had and the festivals and the, the temple and the tabernacle and how they gathered and how they celebrated. It's in their scrolls and their songs. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want make a joyful noise to the Lord. It's in every single bit of that. Jesus says all of that was pointing you to me. All that was saying, he's coming. There's a Messiah who would come. And he comes in the flesh. And on the night that he comes, the angels come. And the angel comes to the poor shepherds, terrifies them to death. And then he, remember what he says? He says, oh, oh, there's good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. Remember what God said? Oh, it's very good. And the world has gone on for thousands of years. It's turned into a total mess. And now the angel comes and says, oh, that hadn't, he didn't stop on that. He still intends to do good for you. There's good news that is coming. And it's all wrapped up in Jesus. What was good about that? Well, he lived a perfect human life. He died sacrificially. He rose victoriously over sin and death and hell. He reigns eternally all for the love of you and me. Because he loves you, he reigns. And what else does he do? He said, I will forgive you of your sins. I'll reconcile you back to your relationship with the God who created you. I'll adopt you as my very own children. I'll give you a brand new name. I'll transform you from the inside out and make you more and more like my son. I'll empower you with my spirit to live the life I want you to live. And I'm going to give you God-sized portions of love and joy and peace and hope and security and life now and life forever. And I'm going to give it all to you free by grace. 
That's pretty good news, right? It's good news of what he's given and what he's provided for us. And so now when we look at Jesus, we see who he is. We have the puzzle box top. We have all the edge pieces. We can see all that God has been doing. We can see the whole mystery. What ages and generations and millennia could not see, we get to see. I love how Peter describes this. He says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. They saw all the pieces. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Now hang with me for a minute. The angels of God who have been face to face with the glories of of the Almighty since before creation. Look at the salvation that we know. The salvation of just one sinner like you or me. And they say, oh wow. We've never seen anything like that. See, they didn't experience grace like we did or mercy or forgiveness, or pursuing Savior. Oh, wow. It says there's more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than anything else. They're looking at you and looking at me, looking at what we know of our salvation, of the mystery of God, and the very angels of glory are saying, oh, wow, there's nothing like that. Now listen, this is what he's known. We get to see it. We get to see the fullness of all that God has always been meaning to do in Christ. We get to see it because our king has made it known. And yet, we live in a world full of people for whom that gospel is still a mystery. They don't know. So I also want you to see that King Jesus not only reveals his secret, but he assigns a stewardship for God's mission. Paul sees that he stepped into that story, and in this, this moment, in this time, he has a specific responsibility. Back in verse 25, he says, I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. So this stewardship, this responsibility from God, he gave it, and so he's the one as our master who gives it, so we'll answer for it. But it's with the church that it's given. Now, when people say the church of Jesus Christ is the hope of the world, well, Jesus Christ is the hope of the world, but the church is the vehicle God has chosen to get that out there, to make known to the world. So, so here's what happens. We gather here every Lord's Day to worship and remind ourselves again of the beauties and the wonder of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In essence, we gather here every Lord's Day so together we can look at the gospel again and together say, oh, wow, 
this thing is really good. This gospel, this good news is really good. But then we scatter where we live, work, learn, and play throughout the week. So Living Hope is in hundreds of places across our community every week just because you're there, just because I'm there. Now, Paul says he's a minister. You say, well, that seems a little formal. I don't have that kind of responsibility. No, maybe not, but you have responsibility for a ministry. There's a ministry, now it's not on our church list of programming, but it's in everything we do. It's not in our, in a line item in our budget, but it, it, it's in every single penny we spend. And here's the ministry, it's described in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, look, God through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling, putting back together the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. He says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you, be reconciled to God. Come back to him. That's our ministry. All of us who are disciples of Jesus, we've been given that ministry. And did, did you know... This is an aspect of covenant church membership at Living Hope. This is what Living Hope membership means. When you join a membership, you committed to be a part of that ministry. Yes, there are glorious privileges to being a part of Living Hope, a great church family and ministries and things that are great for our families and all those kind of things. That's fantastic. But there are also serious responsibilities to being a part of a membership here. And part of that is this ministry, your responsibility, and it's crucial. In a human body, if even one cell doesn't do what it's supposed to do, then we say that's dysfunctional, or it's weakness, or it's not healthy. We need you to take your part of the ministry God has given us. We need all of us doing our part. Okay, so, so God has given us a responsibility to do what? To make the Word of God fully known. Now, to be fully known, yeah, we want to make sure the content's right. We don't want to do a false gospel or dilute it. But we want to make it fully known to everybody. If I'm going to do this stewardship, that's going to mean I have to value the gospel as the most important truth on the planet. Romans says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Now, catch this, the power of God, the same God who spoke universes into being, who sustains everything that exists by a word, that power, he says, is available for salvation to everyone. Nobody's left out. Do you see in that the potential for life transformation? The potential to change families and communities and nations. Do you see the potential that is there for healing and for hope? I can't keep that to myself. i got to let somebody know those things. So, so but making it known to them fully will, will not happen by merely being a good example of morality, being kind and good neighbor, voting correctly and conservatively on issues, voting in elections. Listen, brothers and sisters. There are cults and world religions like Islam that do those things and do them better than we do. There's something unique about the ministry that we're called to, and it has to do with communicating the reality of the gospel. And we have to communicate it in person with words. You say, I don't know what to say. What do I say? That's the wrong question. First question is not what do I say. First question is what do I hear? Colossians 4 verse 6 says this, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so we know how you ought to answer each person. So you walk through your life, where you live, where you work, where you learn, where you play, and you just listen to people. 
You listen to their hopes and their dreams, listen to their anxieties and their hurts, listen to the things they look to for significance, the things they're looking to to make their life and put their life together. Listen to all those things, and you begin to weave into that threads of the gospel truth. If you've been here for any length of time at all, you have dozens, if not hundreds of times, seen the three circles. You've seen the story, creation, fall, rescue, restoration. Take those truths Oh, God has a design. He created us for a reason. Weave that thread in. Oh, there's a fall. That means there's brokenness and pain in the world. Weave that thread in. Oh, there's, there's the gospel and Jesus comes to rescue us. Weave that thread in. There's a promise of restoration. You weave that thread in. Now, you don't always get an opportunity to walk through that from start to finish. You may not always get the opportunity to do the whole story, but you can do a part of it and then see what God does with that. Put a part, put a part together and see what God does, where that leads. You can take truths you hear in a sermon or in your connect group or in an ABF or in a Bible study or from a podcast or out of your quiet time or a book you're reading. Here's how much you realize. Most of us have more gospel truth stored in the crinkly recesses of our brains than we have ever spoken out loud. You know the gospel. You know gospel truth. But here's what you got to remember. All gospel truth comes to you on the way to somebody else. <laughs> so you hear it, you apply it, you share it. You hear it, you apply it, you share it. And when you've heard it and applied it, now it's your responsibility to share it. Now we can't do that by ourselves. We can't do that alone. None of us can do it by ourselves, but we're not designed to. Remember, remember Jesus told the parable of the farmer and the seed. So the farmer went out with seed and he just scattered seed. Wherever he goes and fell on different kinds of soil and those kind of things. That's what you and I do. We go and we're scattering gospel seed. Wherever we go in relationships and conversations, we're shouting that. And we don't have any idea which heart or how heart is going to receive that or latch onto it. But here's the thing. That's not our job. <laughs> our job is not that. We're responsible to get the message out there. We're responsible to get the gospel out there to make it known. So our king says, I'm going to let you know the secret of what I've been doing all of history. And I'm going to give you a responsibility, a stewardship for a part of my mission. If you're mine, here's what we got to realize. Our king is worthy of sacrifice for God's call. Amen. So when I do this, when I do this and I'm obedient and I'm doing what I'm supposed to do, what that means is, right, that everything's going to be rainbows, daffodils, and lollipops. It's going to be great. Not so much. Verse 24, you see what he said? He said, in my sufferings for your sake, in my flesh and flame was lacking in Christ's afflictions for his body, the church. There's sufferings and there's afflictions. Paul's suffering in the flesh. This is not imaginary or theoretical. He's being faithful to Jesus. He's living out his faithfulness to Christ. He's a faithful disciple, and he's suffering, having afflictions and difficulty, and it's hard, and it's hurtful. While you, and then you got this odd, weird phrase, I'm filling up what's lacking in Christ's afflictions for the church. Now, wait a minute. We just sang it a minute ago. It's finished. Didn't Jesus say that? It's finished. It's done. Yeah, the salvation's accomplished. Nothing more to add, but... As the gospel advances, there's more suffering and pain and cost that comes to his body, not physically, but his body now. That's the church. That's me and you. Number one guy who walked through this said, he said this. He said, the cross of Christ is for the propitiation of sins, 
But the cross each Christian is called to bear is for the propagation of the gospel, to spread out the realities of who he is and make it known. Jesus was clear, live on mission with me. You'll be hated by all for my sake. You'll, you'll, it'll cost you your closest friends. Your government and your society may oppose you. You may be shut out of the public square. Your Twitter account that begins to advertise the movie you like because it gives out one of God's values may be shut down for a time. There may be a suffering and, and cost that comes in the middle of all those things, and it's going to happen to us as we walk through that, face legal challenges, be ostracized socially, misunderstood, and slandered. He says, this is what it means to live for the kingdom. There's a forgotten beatitude. We don't talk about this so much. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Jesus said, this is the normal Listen, when the Bible talks about disciples dying, that's not a metaphor. That's a real possibility as we live faithfully to Christ in a world that hates and opposes him. Do you understand that if I call Jesus King and Lord of my life, it's not just, hey, I'll check in for an hour on Sunday. I'll read a little devotion of the week, and that's all good. No, he says it's everything. It's my whole life. All that I am summed up in him, and it costs but here's what I want you to know. It's so worth it. It's so worth it because people matter. People that we know are horrifically broken. And at the same time, they are ferociously loved by God. And he says, I'm going to come and I'm going to bring you love and mercy and grace and hope that's deeper and broader and wider than any other pain his gospel is the only hope to break the chains of an addiction or to save marriages or to give a, a true and better story instead of the lie that they're living or to make sure they have an eternity in heaven rather than in, in hell. Listen, whatever it costs to get it to them, it's worth it even if it costs our very own life. Whatever it costs, it's worth it because joyful obedience to Jesus as master and king, even if it hurts and costs, helps us know him better. There's so much of Christ to know and so much we're not going to know except in these kind of moments. So again, Peter, he says this. He says, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. His very presence settles on those who are suffering for the cause of Christ. So join the mission. Share the sufferings. Get more of him. It's always worth it, even if it costs everything. A few years ago, I had the chance to hear and have some conversations with Joseph Son, who is a Romanian Baptist pastor. He served during the rule of the brutal dictator Ceausescu under the communist rule. His church and he himself particularly were named enemies of the state. He was watched. His family was threatened. They threatened to take him to a labor camp. They interrogated him for hours at a time by the secret police and Finally, one day there was a meeting between him and a communist official in a coffee shop, and they offered him a job and, and said they would care for his family for life in exchange if he would just stop preaching the gospel. And Joseph Son turned down their, their offer. He said, you, you said you were going to finish me as a preacher. 
I asked God, he wants me to continue. <laughs> if I had to make one of you two angry, I decided it was better to make you angry than God. I know you'll have to kill me. I've accepted that. I put everything in order. I'm ready to die. But while I'm free, I'm going to spread this gospel. The communist official decided if that's what he wanted, that's what he would have. And so he was left free to spread the gospel, still with the watching, still with the interrogations. For the next four years, until they sent him into exile, they even came one time and the secret police threatened to shoot him. And he said to them, don't you understand that if you shoot me, you'll send me to glory. You can't threaten me with glory. The more struggles I have here, the more glory I get there. You can't threaten me. He said he came to understand this suffering was not an accident, but a part of God's plan for the church. And so there was one particular time of interrogation. This went on for four or five days, very little sleep, and they just pressure and pressure and pressure. And finally he said to them, your supreme weapon is killing. My supreme weapon is dying. Here's how it works. My sermons are on tape all over the country. Whether you shoot me or crush me, whichever one you choose, you sprinkle my sermons with my blood. And everybody that has one of my tapes will pick it up and say, I better listen to this again. This man died for what he preached. And my sermons will speak ten times louder after you kill me. And I will conquer this country for God because you do it. So go on and do it. Kill me. Because dying for the Lord is not an accident. It's not a tragedy. It's just part of the job. He's right, you know. And it's not just for people who live in communist countries under difficult circumstances. I know that's not where you are, but maybe you could listen to a brother who's gone before you. See, Joseph knew and was gripped by the message of the gospel of Jesus. Are you? When was the last time you looked at your own salvation and just went, oh, wow. Maybe in a moment as we pray, you'd want to come here and kneel and say, Lord, stir my heart again with the beauty of your salvation. He accepted his stewardship in his time and his place where he was. Have you? Accepted your responsibility for the mission of God in this time, in this place, in your relationships where you are. Maybe you need to tell him you're ready to take on that. He was willing to sacrifice it all for the sake of Christ and his gospel. Are you? Maybe as we pray, you come and kneel here and just say, Lord, I'm going to take my hands off this life. Every breath, every drop of blood, every moment is yours because you're my master. You see, if you call him master, if you call him king, that's what this life begins to look like. And so maybe, along with our brother Joseph, you might want to just say to him something like this. Wherever he leads, I'll go. Wherever he leads, I'll go. I'll follow my Christ who loves me so. Wherever he leads, I'll go. You know this, sing along. 
My heart, my life, my all I bring to Christ who loves me so. This is the dangerous part. He is my master, Lord and King. Wherever he leads, I'll go. Wherever he leads, I'll go. Wherever he leads, I'll go. I'll follow my Christ who loves me so. Stand together and pray. And so, Lord, we pray in these moments that that dangerous prayer will echo in our minds and that we will indeed respond to the prompting of your spirit, that you would stir our hearts afresh with the gospel, that you would help us to say yes to our responsibility and take our hands off our life for you and for your glory. Would you help us in these moments as we look to Jesus to say yes to you? with all that we have in our life. It's in your name we pray all these things. Amen. As we worship together, you come and pray and do business with your King.